Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. afternoon show. Bill Arnold with you for the whole hour, just like I was here last hour. I'm still here, which is wonderful because it's two hours we get to be together. And I am uh, excited about this hour. My friend and Bible teacher and mentor, Jeff Verdorn, is with me today. Hi, Bill. Hey, Jeff. I haven't officially brought you on yet, but jump in Sorry. anytime okay. you want. <laughs> the red light's on. I so. get it. Yeah. yeah. It's, okay. it's go ahead and talk anytime. Um, I was just going to set up what we were going to talk about, but, you know, seeing how you jumped in, let's just do it together. Let's be thankful. That's what we want to talk about today. Thankfulness. Being, yes. All right. Which is going to be great. We're going to talk about uh, Thanksgiving, and we're going to talk about uh, how important it is to be reminded of the origins of Thanksgiving and who is, our, who is the object of our thanks. That's the most important part of this, is who is the object of our thankfulness. And we know the answer. We do. Yes. The so, Lord God Almighty. Thank you. From whom all blessings flow, right? Yeah. We can now close in prayer. <laughs> you have more material than that, don't you? A little bit. Okay. Yeah, a little history of Thanksgiving, a little couple economic lessons from really? the first thing. Yes, really. Okay. Well, I'll brace myself and just let the audience know that <laughs> Jeff's views are not the views of the station. <laughs> Well, from economic standpoint, right? Yeah. So, I mean, it's it's easy. We're, we, yeah, what I want to talk about today is uh, these two big lessons from that we need to remember. We have these holidays, we have these days, we have these events uh, to help us remember. And unfortunately, I listened to Rob on the way uh, here, Rob, uh, Rob Louie, Louie. yeah, mm-hmm. from Daily Single Signal, and he was talking about how Columbus Day is under attack and saying Merry Christmas is under attack. And now, and and, and I didn't realize this, he he informed me on several things. Thanksgiving is under attack, right? Um, These are days that the generations before us set in place so that future generations would remember certain things. So today I want to talk about what are the couple things that we need to remember uh, from these, uh, these Thanksgiving proclamations that have been being handed down president after president after president. Yeah, and I appreciate that because we've been chatting about it a little bit this week, and I think the more the better because it's um, this is the week to have it fresh in your mind, and uh, if you're going to have discussions with family and loved ones, it's really good to be informed. Yeah, and uh, unfortunately, we have this thing in 2020 called COVID. Uh, We've had some of these... Heard about that. Uh, Yeah, you did. Yeah, 2020 has been kind of a stressful year for a lot of people, and and uh, it's challenging year in a lot of ways, right? So one of the things that's happened in, in our state, in the state of Minnesota, is we got another executive order that just came down um, limiting uh, social gatherings for social community or leisure purposes in your home. So a lot of people who had Thanksgiving plans uh, this week are trying to figure out, well, what does that mean for us? We were going to have uh, another household of family coming over or the, my adult children and his kids were going to come over or, or you were going to go over to their house or whatever. And they're all figuring out, well, what do I, what does this executive order mean uh, for me? Now, I will say one thing, nothing I'm going to talk about here um, 
for a Christian, Romans 13, I think, is pretty clear. Mm -hmm. To submit to those in authority over you. So I want to make sure that we understand that we are trying to submit fully uh, to this executive order and what I'm going to say. But I also want to point out a couple exemptions or exceptions that the governor himself put into his executive order. So this isn't... And there's probably states all across the great U.S. of A. that have executive orders similar to this. I don't want to be excluding people Correct. who uh, are commuting home from Hartford tonight. Right. So I know that you're in multiple states. I don't know all the specific restrictions. So um, you be responsible, be a responsible citizen, go to your, you know, the governor's website or whatever, look up what are your COVID restrictions. And I, I know I don't like these restrictions. I don't like uh, a lot of things that are going on with this um, with this COVID thing and some of the restrictions, because I find it interesting that we're limiting who can enter into your household on Thanksgiving Day, but the next day, called Black Friday, you can go out and shop with mm-hmm. you know thousands of other people at a store on on Black Friday. So mm-hmm. to me, some of the things that we're doing don't make a lot of sense. But here, let's get to some. So you understand it, whatever state you're in, what are your restrictions, and also what are some of your exceptions or exemptions from these rules. So let me just, I want to highlight three of them really quick in in Minnesota. So the first one is the care of others for the care of family members, friends, or pets in another household. So you can enter another household legally according to this executive order uh, if it's for the care of others. Now, interesting, care is not defined. So whatever care you think you need to bring in somebody else's household, your mother, your grown children or friends, neighbors or whatever, to get together, uh, that's okay according to our executive order. The second one is, uh, it says, prohibited social gatherings do not include sobriety or other mental health support groups. So you can have a mental health support group. Hmm. Now, 2020, like I mentioned, has been a pretty tough year, and you just might need some mental health support. Like being around your family? Like being around family or friends. Now, it does say that you should have remote meetings where possible, but it says that you can get together in person if they are smaller meetings of shorter duration. But once again, it does not define what shorter and smaller means. So if you need your family and friends to come over to help you get through this time, this tough year happens to be on Thursday on Thanksgiving Day, and and maybe you just eat some turkey while you're doing it, right? So <laughs> this is this is all. And, and by the way, it also says that you're supposed to follow the guidelines, the health recommendations and guidelines. The last one I think is very important, especially for us Christians, and that is um, places of worship. There is a specific exemption in your state. It probably has an exemption like this as well, that if you are getting together for worship, for prayer, or for scripture study— you can have other individuals from other households in your home to do those things. So when you gather around your table to maybe eat because the people that you're having at your prayer group meeting or your Bible study or scripture reading just might be hungry for some turkey and stuffing. Um, gravy. Gravy. You, uh, yeah, just make sure that you read some scriptures and pray, which hopefully everybody who's listening was going to do anyway at the start of their Thanksgiving meal. So, um, so like I said, those are specific exemptions listed in the state of Minnesota. One, check your own state to make sure, but um, I, those are there for a reason, right? And I think we can fully take advantage of them while still 
adhering to the admonition in Scripture in Romans 13 to submit to those in authority over you. When you read those, Jeff, they sounded very vague to me all of a sudden. It seems like it was very vague. Well, it is vague. We have a an executive order uh, that was not passed by any legislature. It wasn't thought out. It wasn't debated in some subcommittee and passed and then signed by a governor. Remember, these are executive orders under a state of emergency. Mm-hmm. Uh, so things like care and minimal and size and small and and, uh, you know, remote meetings are recommended or strongly encouraged. That's the language in these things. Mm-hmm. So I say, uh, let's take advantage of this language and uh, make sure, print it out. Print out the copies of your executive order and have them ready um, just in case you get a knock on your door, which <laughs> I can't believe we're even talking about in America. Yeah, I can't either. I'm sure there's going to be a, no knocks on the door. Oh. Unless there's like, you know, just 22 cars on your front lawn. Yeah. Um, and the neighbors would go, I think, I think there's a party there at the Verdorns. Well, you know that the... Uh, I'm going to come by <laughs> your house. I'm going to check to see how many cars well, are I'm in not your driveway. Be, I'm not, I won't be at home, so uh, actually. Um, but yeah, I think we need to, we, we don't want to, you know, flaunt things. No, of course not. But no, but uh, look, if you are going to get together with your family, as you always do, and you, you have more than one household or more than 10 people, all I'm saying is there are there are exceptions in the executive order that I think we can take advantage of mm-hmm. and follow. And, follow and, and then, of course, we just have to be respectful of the desires and wishes of people in our families and in, and in other families that would normally gather with if they said, I'm not comfortable. I respect that all the way. Yeah. And I also understand that we are... There are more people that have COVID today than there, there was when the mm-hmm. first lockdown... You know, first, I didn't know anybody for I didn't months. either. And today I know personally about a dozen people that have had it. Uh, they've all had various uh, symptoms, mm-hmm. none of which were, were serious, and they've all recovered, and they're all fine today. So, mm-hmm. um, so yeah, I, I recognize that it's gotten worse. So if you have elderly people in your home or people with especially, especially people with preexisting conditions, well, then I encourage you to follow very strictly a lot of the recommendations coming down from both the federal government and the state that you are in. Mm-hmm. Nicely done. All right, I think uh, before we jump into some of the history of Thanksgiving and just the great reminders of what our, uh, what happened uh, so many years ago, we'll take a little break and then we'll come back and we'll dive into that. Does that sound like a good plan? Perfect. Jeff? Sounds good. Jeff, all right. Jeff Redorn is my guest. After a short break, we'll be back. tired of that song. I do you? don't. I know. I, I don't think I song. do either. All right, we're back talking about the great uh, gift of Thanksgiving. I hope we have lots of gratitude in our hearts all the time, and the object of our gratitude and worship is Jesus, and we're going to talk a little bit about history, a little bit about economics, and a little bit about what God's Word teaches. So let's get started. Perfect. So let's go back to the first Thanksgiving, and that proclamation was in 1621. So almost 400 years ago today, 
William Bradford, who was the governor of the settlement at Plymouth, the Plymouth Colony in Massachusetts, so this is the first pilgrims that landed in America, he made a proclamation in 1621, and it was a decree that a three-day feast be held thanking God for the plentiful crops. Now, a little background here on what happened. So the pilgrims show up with Bradford. Uh, They had signed this company colony agreement and this agreement was basically, an, um, um, the bylaws said this, it said all profits and benefits that are not got, that are got by trade, traffic, tra- trucking, working, fishing, or any other means remain still in ye common stock. What does that mean? It means that everything they made would go into a common storehouse. And then whenever somebody needed something, it went on to say in their bylaws this, all are to have their meat drink, apparel, and all provisions out of ye common stock. I want to start saying ye again. I like that. I do. Didn't you say trucking? I mean, there's no trucking back then. You know, I was going to look up that word and what they meant by trucking in 1600s. I don't know. I didn't look it up. Okay. Transportation of some kind. (laughs) I guess transportation. Yeah. Yeah. A little pull cart, maybe? A pull cart with maybe an oxen or horse or whatever. Yeah, okay. Transporting stuff. Well, why did the the investors who funded these pilgrims to come over require them to sign this agreement that, that basically made it a, a commune, a shared, a communist kind of form of uh, a form of economy that they were when they landed in the new world. Well, starting with Plato and, and people like Sir Thomas More, who wrote uh, this kind of this famous book in the 1500s called The Island of Utopia. That's where we get this name, Utopia, had this vision of a utopia um, where you'd have a ruling class, those who are in charge, and then you'd have everybody else as part of the ruled, uh, the common class. And that was considered to be kind of the perfect form of government by many philosophers leading up to this day. Well, in this form of government, there's no personal property. Wealth was collectively owned. Children actually belonged to the state or to the village or to the people. And government decides what everybody was going to do. But this was utopia, and they were going to try it out. Well, what happens is the first year, using this form of economy, uh, they didn't produce enough. There was a lot of starvation, and half the people that showed up in 1620 ended up dying uh, in the first year. And after this first year, um, Bradford uh, uh, wrote a book. William Bradford actually wrote of this uh, experiment in socialism, basically. His book was called Of Plymouth Plantation. He wrote this. Now, I've got several quotes here, but they're so critical to understanding this, this important economic lesson from 1621 that we should be remembering every single year, every Thanksgiving afterwards, and we, for, we have forgotten it. This is not taught anymore. He wrote this, quote, The failure of that experiment of communal service, of basically socialism, communism, collectivism, which was tried for several years by good and honest men, proves the emptiness of the theory of Plato and other ancients applauded by some in latter times. So he was referencing this idea, this philosophical idea that we should be striving for this utopia where everybody has the same amount, right? Mm-hmm. He goes on to say that the taking away of private property and the possessions of it in community would make a state happy and flourishing as if they were wiser than God. 
So we recognize this, like, this kind of goes away from God's design, he thought. So they thought that he thought that the people who founded this and came up with this idea thought believed that they were wiser than God. So he discovered, after this hard time, for in this instance, community of property was found to breed much confusion and discontent and retard much employment, which would have been to the general benefit. For the young men who were most able and fit for service objected to being forced to spend their time and strength in working for other men's wives and children without recompense. And the strong men and the resourceful man had no more share of food, clothing, etc. than the weak man who was not able to do a quarter of what the others could. This was thought an injustice. So what's the situation? Bradford recognized that if nobody, if everybody's responsible for producing food and clothing and shelter and provisions, well, then no one really is because no one gets to benefit from their own hard work. You're really working for the collective and not for yourself and your family. He goes on to say that even the older men thought it indignant and disrespectful that they were getting a share when they weren't working as much as the strong men, and they were yet getting an equal share. So even those who were benefiting from it didn't like this system. And then he says this, and this is probably what drove the change. As for men's wives, (laughs) ah, here, now we get to it, who were obligated to do service for other men, such as cooking, washing of clothes, etc., they considered it a kind of slavery, and many husbands would not brook it. Brook it. I don't know. Allow it. Okay. So uh, they, they wrote differently back I then. I think they did, yes. <clears throat> so uh, he goes on to say, let, let none argue that this is done to human failing rather than to the communistic plan, communist plan of life in itself, that God in his wisdom saw that another plan of life was fitter for them. So they got together and they said, so what are we going to do about it? Um, and they had a meeting. So the people got together and Bradford led it. And he said that basically the governor, the chief among them, allowed each man and each family then to have a portion of the land as their own. And each family was responsible for growing their own corn and producing their own uh, food supplies and, and everything. So every, it turned from a communal, communistic economy to a private property you know, free market capitalistic kind of economy. Well, what happened? It made, he goes on to quote, it was very successful. Quote, it made all hands very industrious so that much more corn was planted than otherwise would have been by any other means. And it gave far greater satisfaction. People, when we work and we provide and we're successful, that brings, that's, I think, God's design for men, and it brings that internal satisfaction that he recognized right away. He goes on to say that the women were now willing to go into the field and bring their young ones and plant and work, and uh, when before you couldn't compel them to work, now they were going out freely and bringing their children and working hard to provide. Well, the result was that they, that next year, had plenty, an abundance of food and provision. And so the first Thanksgiving was really not, not only was it a recognition of God and his blessing and his provision and his protection, like we just read in his proclamation, 
but it was also a recognition, this economic lesson, that this socialism didn't work. And as soon as they put it out to private property and each man and each family was responsible for their own provision, um, they saw an abundance. And I bet, I bet everyone ate out of that abundance as well. Well, yeah, and then, of course, we know that um, this neighboring Indian tribe that they had formed this peace treaty with um, showed up as well. In fact, there was um, recorded more Indians there than probably colonists. There are pilgrims that were there. Uh, and there was such an abundance for three days. Uh, they had this feast uh, where they gave thanks to God for his His abundance. Um, I, I will add one thing, because the pilgrims were a Christian lot. Most of them were Christian people. They were looking for religious freedom. They didn't like the persecution that they were experiencing uh, in the old world and wanted to come to the new world to have that religious freedom, to worship God and freedom. We all should have that desire um, as we see threats to our religious freedom, Christians should be the first to stand up and say, well, no, we have religious freedom. The First Amendment protects our right uh, of religious freedom, um, and we should stand up for that. But some argue within the church, well, didn't the church um, live, the early church, didn't they live in kind of a socialistic, collectivist kind of economy? And they use passages like Acts chapter 2 where it says, now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as anyone had need. Well, that must be socialism, right? No, it's, it's really not socialism. If you look at this passage and others that are related to it closely, you realize there's some big differences, really big differences between what the church was doing and socialism, Okay. First and foremost, what the church was doing was voluntary. Socialism is an involuntary tax on the wealthy to redistribute. Remember, Marxism is basically the, the from each according to his ability to each according to his needs. But it's forced upon all people, regardless of whether or not the individual wants to give or not. What we see in the church is voluntary People sold property and sold possessions and gave to the church as there was need. So I think that's the biggest and most significant distinction is socialism is forced, forced charity, if you will. What we see in the early church is generosity. Mm -hmm. It's people willing to sell and give to those who are in need. The second key distinction, it was done, it was given to those who had need and to say that some had need and others had plenty shows me that they weren't living in a collectivist socialist environment. Some had more than others mm -hmm. by definition. And so the ones that had more, they did sell. They were generous. And as some had need. Remember, we're talking about first century need here. We're talking mm -hmm. food and clothing and right. necessities here. Uh, that was the true need of the first mm -hmm. church. All right, that was a wonderful uh, description of that first Thanksgiving. The only detail you left out and forgot hmm. was that was the first time the Detroit Lions lost. <laughs> and that's been 400 years and nothing's changed. 400 yeah, years. Yeah. We'll take a little break. We'll come back. Lots more with Jeff Verdorn. We'll be right back.
It's the Afternoon Show with Bill Arno. Drive time, drive time. Let's get it started. Jump in your car. What's for dinner? It's the Afternoon Show with Bill Arno. I'm back with Jeff Redorn, and we are chatting about Thanksgiving, which I love this subject. I think it's always good to be reminded of of the historical perspective and what we can learn and how we can be better equipped to have discussions with people that we talk about Thanksgiving with. I, Thanksgiving is my favorite holiday. But yeah, there's no gift giving. There's no pressure. You just gather with loved ones and eat, and it's pretty nice. I'm right with you Thanks. on that one. I yeah. don't, the, You know, I love to give gifts, but as soon as I... It's like time to give a gift. It's like, yeah. oh, no, what am I going to, I don't know what I'm going to give anybody. <laughs> There's no pressure at Thanksgiving. No, but I can give throughout the year. And, you know, to me, every day is Thanksgiving. Yeah. Every day is Christmas. Every day is Easter. That's, I love that. Yeah, that's kind of that. how I travel yeah. it. So where's my gift then? It's coming. Okay. Good. Yeah. Um, so we were talking about the church is not socialistic. The early church was not a collectivist organization. We were talking about some of the distinctions between socialism and, and the early church and what they did. And so it was voluntary, not involuntary. They believed they gave to those who had need. And then two other quick ones, just really quick. It was it, the, the gifts were given to the apostles. They laid it at the apostles' feet. They gave it to the church. The church was the one that was responsible for caring for the widows and the orphans and those in need, and uh, not the government, right? Um, I think we as Christians and as a church, have abdicated that responsibility. We've just said, well, the government's taking care of them, so we don't have to do anything. And I think, actually, it's it was the church's responsibility to do these things. So when people sold what they had, their possessions and property, it came to the church, and the church is the one that met these needs. Um, and then finally, it was given to other believers, and it was those within the church um, that we see. So First John 3 says this, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or a sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Um, There's lots of verses in the Bible that call us to be generous. And uh, if we have much, if we sow sparingly, we're going to reap sparingly. So absolutely, a call to be generous and to meet the needs. But remember, the needs that were being met were first century needs. If you have three squares a day, uh, a place to lay your head at night, a roof over your head and some extra change in your pockets, well, then I think God is meeting your needs. Uh, we have to distinguish between needs and wants, obviously. Mm-hmm. So let's be discerning on how we provide and meet the needs of others within the church. And Jeff, comment on this passage out of Acts chapter 2, starting in 44, it says, and all the believers met together constantly and shared everything they had. They sold their possessions and shared the proceeds with those in need. Yeah, so that's that was the verse that I read earlier at the beginning of this thing, that that, that was kind of that some use that verse to say, see, Jesus was a socialist, the early church was socialistic, uh, and therefore we're going to make a defense of socialism from a Christian perspective. And I just don't think you can go there. I don't think that is what's being taught in Scripture. I think the lesson here from the early church is that uh, they were extremely generous to other believers within their within their church, and as people hadn't—look, I've asked this question before. If you have someone in your small group at church, or even in your church, I don't know how big your church is, and you have someone, a family or an individual that that is doesn't have a place to live, got kicked out, and doesn't have any food, I, I think the churches are going to meet that person's need, and I think they do it every single day across this country. Mm-hmm. So I think we do, but never forget the 
the admonition in Scripture is to the individual. So do you remember the parable of the Good Samaritan, mm-hmm. right? A guy gets robbed. He's left for dead, half dead, on the side of the road. And the uh, I think the order is the priest comes first and he passes by. Then the Levite passes by. And then finally a Samaritan passes by. And he picks him up, dresses his wounds, brings them to this hotel, leaves his credit card, right, and said, hey, take care of this guy while I go attend to business. He, and, then, and then he asked, Jesus asked the expert in the law at the beginning, who was the good neighbor? Well, obviously, we all know who was the good neighbor. So we should be that good neighbor when we see someone in need, obviously. Mm-hmm. And I mm-hmm. think that's the lesson, not socialism. That's not the lesson. So now the first, so let's continue. So that's no, lesson number one from our Thanksgiving proclamations is an economic one. But now the main lesson, let's get to the, the meat here. And that is that every single proclamation in history had an object to that thanks. So if we go to the first kind of official proclamation in our country's history, which was actually in 1676 in Massachusetts in Charleston, that proclamation read like this, quote, the holy God having by long and continual series of his affliction, dispensations, and it's hard to read. I don't even know what they're trying to say here in 16th century (laughs) language. Mm -hmm. But the bottom line is they talk about his own covenant people and his judgments uh, and that he is displeased with our sins, but yet the Lord's mercy um, and, and his returning mercy as not standing before him, we then give thanksgiving to God. Who was the object of their thanksgiving Mm -hmm. in 1676? God was. God. It was the Lord. So now we get to the first federal proclamation in our country. So this is November 1777. So just a year after the Declaration of Independence, the Revolutionary Continental Congress issued this decree, quote, For as much as it is the indispensable duty of all men, to adore the superintending providence of Almighty God. Mm. It goes on to say that through the merits of Jesus Christ, mercifully to forgive and blot out our sins, that they had talked about the sins earlier, and it goes on to talk about the divine benefactor, and it's to him that we give thanks. Do you think a proclamation like that could pass our legislative? Not today. No, No, no. But that was 1777. We then get to kind of where most people start in their history of Thanksgiving is George Washington's proclamation. So we are now after the Revolutionary War. It's now 1789, and George Washington makes this proclamation. Whereas it is the duty of all nations to acknowledge the providence of Almighty God, to obey His will, and to be grateful for His benefits and humbly and poor his protection and favor. And it goes on and on and says, Now, therefore, I recommend this Thursday, the 26th of November next, to be devoted by the people of the states to the service of the great and glorious being who is the beneficent author of all that is good. Um, And we submit to his care and his protection, the great Lord and ruler of the nations. Uh, He goes on to talk about our national sins and uh, giving thanks to God. Who hmm. are they giving thanks to? God. God. Yep. Even in the state of Minnesota where we, at, we are at, uh, the first governor, Alexander Ramsey, made a declaration in 1850 where he talks about the protecting arm of Almighty God. And then, of course, we get to 
Abraham Lincoln. So the modern Thanksgiving that we celebrate today started with Abraham Lincoln in 1863. Now, this is right in the midst of the Civil War. So the nation was at war. People were dying. People were suffering. And yet, what does our nation do? Lincoln writes this proclamation of Thanksgiving. Now, there's a little more history there that's kind of cool. I'll just mention her name. There's a woman by the name of Sarah Hale. And Sarah Hale spent 20 years of her life, priests up to, leading up to this proclamation, trying to convince the federal government, including Lincoln, to have a national day of thanksgiving. She wrote letter after letter and article after article trying to convince the American people we need a national day of thanksgiving. Should have baked Lincoln cookies. <laughs> that would have been helpful. It would, but I think it's one of these lessons, and I've, I've read a couple things about her, where she was just on this tireless mission uh, to get this to be a national holiday. And you know what? It took almost a couple decades, but she finally got it. Wow. And I think she's one of these unsung heroes of our nation's history. I wonder there. how many people even know her name, Sarah Hale. No, yeah, Sarah Hale. Um, very, very good. Look her up and read her story. So um, Abraham Lincoln said this. Uh, he had a preamble where he talked about, we are prone to forget the source from where our bounties come. And then he says in the depths of it, he talks about the Civil War and the pain and the sorrow that the nation was experiencing, and yet that the nation, even during this wartime, had been blessed. So he talks about the plow and the ship and the axe and the land is increasing and and the population is flourishing. And then he says, no human counsel hath divided nor hath any mortal hand worked out these great things. They are the gracious gift of the most high God who while dealing with us in anger for our sins has nevertheless remembered mercy. And he goes on to set apart and observe this last Thursday of November next as a day of thanksgiving and praise to our Father who dwells in heaven. Wow, President's talking about sin and mercy. Oh, yeah. It it doesn't stop with Lincoln, by the way. I know. I'm assuming it doesn't. (laughs) We're going to walk through uh, several more just briefly. Okay. But yeah, I mean, you know, I've one of the things I love to do is go watch old Ronald Reagan videos when he spoke, mm-hmm. uh, even up to Reagan. Man, he talked about the Lord God Almighty and Christ and and, our, and being saved and so on. But you know what? I've, I've listened to a lot of politicians today, um, and many of them. I've heard Pompeo speak. Um, you know, I've heard... Uh, Uh, who's the press, Kaylee McEnany? Kaylee McEnany. Yeah, Mm -hmm. she tweets all the time Bible verses and quotes scripture and talks about salvation in the Lord. So, um, yeah, it's still out there. Hmm. We are still a nation that is comprised of many, many people who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. So um, so there's Abraham Lincoln. Now, I've done a review of all of the presidents leading up to the modern times— And obviously, we're not going to go through all of them and what they said every single year. But just listen to this little list here that I put together. In 1895, Grover Cleveland did a Thanksgiving proclamation where he talked about the goodness of Almighty God. William McKinley in 1898 talked about the dispenser of all things good. 
William Taft in 1911 talked about the unstinted bounty bounty of God. I don't even know what unstinted means. Me neither. It's the bounty of God. Just keep it moving. All right. 1914, Woodrow Wilson talked about the praise and thanksgiving of Almighty God. It was then in 1939 that Roosevelt, FDR, moved Thanksgiving from the last week in November to the third week in November, and he said to give thanks to Almighty God. Ronald Reagan, like I just talked about, every one of his proclamations talked about giving thanks to the Most High. Bill Clinton giving thanks to God in humility for our countless blessings he has bestowed upon our nation. And President George Bush giving thanks with family and friends to thank God for our many blessings. So that's just a little recap of, you know, what, 40 44 presidents all the way through, mm-hmm. and Lincoln and the proclamation. Yeah. All right. Let me take a little break. Do you okay. mind? Jeff yep. Verdorn's my guest. We're talking about Thanksgiving. We'll be right back. Jeff Dorn. We're talking about Thanksgiving, and the object of our thanks is the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's been lots of examples of uh, past leaders uh, honoring God in their Thanksgiving proclamations. And uh, where do we pick up uh, from here, Jeff? Well, now we get to today, recent history. And one of the things that I, I've noticed is that anymore when we talk about Thanksgiving and the Thanksgiving holiday, it's 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 never or rarely I should say not never don't use the word never it's rarely recognizing that we give thanks to God I hear and I see on like Thanksgiving cards about being thankful and having a spirit of thankfulness and be thankful for family and friends and and for you know things in our life even but I submit that thankfulness without an object to that thanks is really meaningless. What is a spirit of thanksgiving? I mean, what does that even mean? You know, so without an object, without God, from whom all blessings flow, and being thankful to God for our blessings, I just think that uh, having a, a sense of thankfulness or a spirit of thankfulness or just being, I'm just thankful, like generally, you need to have an object of that, thanks. Mm-hmm. And I argue that that object should be the Lord God Almighty. Yeah, I mean, if you gave me $300, which I think you should do, um, <laughs> and I said to you, wow, I have a spirit of thankfulness, you know, you don't, you're not getting any appreciation. No. I'm just giving out this vague sort of spirit of thankfulness. What does that mean? There's no recognition from where those things flowed from, right? Right. So th- there's a, just, by the way, to wrap it up, uh, Donald Trump's first proclamation was this, and I just will read the first sentence. On Thanksgiving Day, we have for nearly four centuries, you now know the history. We just walked through four centuries right Mm -hmm. here in the last 40 minutes. Americans give thanks to Almighty God for our abundant blessings. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's exactly right. We need to remember that. Interestingly, in Deuteronomy chapter 8, as Israel was moving into their promised land, God tells them, now, when you have eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God, 
for the good land that he has given you. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commands and so forth. He says, because when you, your herds and your flocks grow large and your silver and gold increases and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You may say to yourself, it is with my power and my strength of my hands that has produced this wealth for me. But remember, it's the Lord your God that gives you the ability to produce that wealth. Mm -hmm. So whether you recognize it or not, whatever your vocation is, God has given you even the ability to produce the wealth that you have. So let's give thanks to him. And I I read this and it kind of sounds like America today, doesn't it? Like we have abundance, we are an abundant people, and yet we are forgetting that it is from the Lord that all blessings flow. And what passage is that again in Deuteronomy? Deuteronomy 8, and I read parts of 10 through about 17 okay. or so. Deuteronomy 8. Deuteronomy Good. 8. Yep. It's a great passage. So, look, I know the Bible has a lot of, uh, I do this keys of faith lesson, and I talk about what are the keys of faith. And you know what the first one on the list is, is being thankful. Mm. Right, And I I love that Thessalonians passage. Here's the other one, by the way. Be joyful always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Yeah, I started the show with that verse. You did? Yeah, is that 1 Thess 5.18? Yeah. Yeah, I started the show with that today. Well, it's a great verse. It's a great verse on, you know, it's one of the few places in the New Testament where God says, this is God's will for you. Mm-hmm. You want to know what God's will for you is? Yeah, right there. Right, right there. Be <laughs> joyful yeah. always. Give thanks in all circumstances. Not this, for all circumstances, but in all circumstances. Right. Yeah. So even when we find ourselves in poor circumstances, God says, well, be thankful. And you think, well, wait a minute here. This is, you know, there's some passages about, you know, the disciples get, you know, flogged and they they leave rejoicing, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, it's kind of like, wow, that that's not my first response, but it actually goes on to say that they feel they, uh, that they would be worthy to suffer for his name, right? And that's why they were rejoicing. It's the same thing with being thankful in circumstances that are less than good. And it's not our first natural uh, response, is it, to give God thanks? Have you read Corey Tenboom's uh, Ten book, The Hiding Place? I've read parts of it. Parts of it. Mm-hmm. There is a story in there. And really quick, because it, it, it is an amazing story. And if you know the story, they were caught uh, smuggling Jews. They went to, they were arrested. Uh, they were turned in by some neighbors and the, the SS showed up. They were arrested. They were sent to concentration camps. They were separated from the rest of their family. But Corey and her sister Betsy both were imprisoned at Ravensburg, uh, a German concentration camp. And they're in this big room full of women where their sleeping bunks are barely a couple feet tall. You couldn't sit up in them. And they were overcrowded. And Corey said, uh, Betsy, how in the world, this is now her talking or a recap from her book, how in the world can we live in such a place? She writes, show us, show us how. And Betsy was crying out to God saying, show us, show us how. And Corey realized that she was praying. And then she says this, he's given us the answer before we ask. He always does. It's in the Bible this morning. Where was it? Where was it? Read that part again. And you know what verse she read? Hmm. First Thessalonians 5, 14 through 18. Hmm. 
what you read at the start of your show, mm-hmm. where it says, be thankful in all circumstances. And, and Betsy says, that's it. That's the answer. We need to give thanks in all circumstances. And Corey's going, how in the world can we give thanks where we're at? We're in cramped spaces. Uh, it's cold. It's drafty. There's people sick all around us. And, uh, and there's these fleas all over the place, right? And Betsy says, no, we're going to give thanks for all of this. So she gives thanks even in the crowded space so there's more people to talk to the Bible. She gives thanks that they were able to smuggle, smuggle their Bible in and they have the, the word with them. And she gives thanks for the fleas and Corey Tenboom interrupts her and says, basically... Now you've gone too far. How in the world can we give thanks for fleas? That's too much, Corey says. And she cut in on her sister. Besides, there's no way even God can make me grateful for fleas. Well, (laughs) a while later, there was an argument, and the guards were going to come in, but they didn't. And Betsy is outside talking to one of the head guards, and they said, she says, you need to come here and solve this. And says, no, we're not going in there. It's infested with fleas. And she realized at that moment why they always had this great freedom in their dormitory where the guards never came and no one from, you know, that was ran the concentration ever came in because they didn't want to get infested with fleas. Mm. And Corey runs to our Betsy runs to Corey and tells her I now know why we're thankful for these fleas it gives us the freedom to live without the guards and the interruption in this space that's a very powerful moment of being thankful in all circumstances in all that's powerful story it is so i think this thankfulness um in any and all circumstances one of the keys to faith um you know, one of the other keys to faith that is kind of the twin cousin, I call it the twin cousin of thankfulness, and that's contentment. Um, this cousin of thankfulness, contentment, is, is a little different. Paul says he learned the secret of being content in any and all circumstances. In Philippians, he says, I know what it says, I know what it's like to be well-fed and to have plenty, and I know what it's like to be in want And he says he's learned the secret to being content in all of those circumstances. And I think one of the things that drives us is, you know, you know, the old adage, it's always the grass is always greener on the other side, right? We always, yeah, you've heard that. We don't believe it, but I've heard it. it, Well, that's because we are not content. Mm -hmm. We are generally not content with our current situation. Oh, if my kids would just do this, if my spouse would just do that, if my, if I just got a raise, if I just got, we're always looking for the next, the next, the next, and we're not content where we're at. Mm -hmm. So I think these two pillars of faith um, are thankfulness and contentment. And yet Paul calls it a secret. So I know that this is not our natural reaction. We always want more. We always want better. We always want the new. We always want the new model, the new car, the new features, the new phone, you know, and we're always looking for more and more. more. And, and anymore in society, we tend to get all these things whenever we want. Our phone updates automatically, you know, we get the next generation of this or that. And, uh, and Paul reminds us that we need to learn the secret of being content in any and all circumstances. 
You know what one of my favorite verses is of all time? Hmm. Philippians 4, 6, and 7. It says this, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And I, my prayer for the church and for the listeners here and for me and all of us here is that we don't worry, we don't fret. We come to God with a thankful heart uh, because as the Veggie Tale song said a long time ago, a thankful heart is a happy heart. Yeah, it is for sure. Jeff, thank you so much for uh, being on the show today. This has been mm-hmm. wonderful to look back over history and be reminded of uh, the uh, proclamations that uh, presidents have made and and uh, what we have learned from our history. It's important to be reminded of that often, and this is a good week to do it. And then to be reminded about where our object of our gratitude is. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Absolutely. Yeah. A nice listener named Lynn said, I pray the 23rd Psalm daily, thanking my Lord for being our shepherd, meeting our needs, and asking our only want to be a closer relationship with him. Amen. That's beautiful. That wraps up our show for the day. Tomorrow's going to be a whole lot of fun. It's uh, going to be David Wheaton will be joining me. And then uh, we're going to be back in our prayer series with Dr. Peter Kapsner and myself. We're going to be talking to Dr. Randy Newman on prayer. That's all ahead tomorrow. Have a great night, everyone. See you then. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.